I think that may be one reason why many, many people who are having these experiences with site with psilocybin and ayahuasca, uh, you know, they come away with a uh, realization about our estrangement from nature and a realization that this is the major existential crisis of our time. You know, we monkeys have got to wake up. You know, we've had the tools for two million years. We're obviously slow learners, you know, but it's not too late. I feel like you've got to affect a, a global transformation in consciousness, a waking up before you can wise up. And the wisdom follows on that. Once you wake up, then you can hopefully thoughtfully figure out, okay, you know, we're in a heap of shit here. Basically, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to find our way out of this? You know, fortunately, and, like who would and who would be better to teach us about what to do sitting there in a heap of shit than the lowly mushroom? Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. So today's interview was with Dennis McKenna, who was half of a legendary brotherly duo with his elder brother, Terence, who famously back in 1971 went down to La Trera in the Amazon in search of these mystic potions and ended up finding themselves in a field of psychedelic mushrooms um, and accidentally through a combination of set setting and vocalization and the dumb luck of the young um, ripped open a hole in the fabric of time and space and came unglued for over a month in a mystic experience that inspired his brother Terence to talk about time wave zero and the end of time in 2012. Now, Dennis, who was actually the one who had that experience, went the other direction. Maybe he needed to ground things and solidify things, but he ended up getting a PhD in, in molecular biology and ethnobotany. And he's now a professor and teacher at the University of British Columbia. So uh, Dennis and I got to riff and roam all over that epic tale of a half century. He is one of the, you know, one of the sort of emeritus professors and leading lights of the psychedelic renaissance. Uh, he was sharing stories from growing up in Peonia in Colorado, down to their adventures in the Amazon, all the way to today, with some of his thoughts on the nature of the psychedelic renaissance, the concept of, the, of linear time, circular time, uh, the relationship between non-ordinary experiences and hallucinations, the differences and fine-grained details between Daychura or Jimson weed, which was popularized with Carlos Castaneda's uh, teachings of Don Juan, Varola, Ukohe, DMT, ayahuasca mushrooms, all of these kind of things. Uh, he talks about the, the, this idea of, hey, um, when people have experiences with plant medicines, question is, is where is the information coming from? Is there anything resembling uh, a free and independent nature or intelligence in plants? Uh, how do we hold humility in the face of these Shazam experiences rather than false certainty? What is the importance and impact of culture and history and society 
and how psychedelics are contextualized and how ultimately we can begin to mend our relationship with ecology via ethnopharmacology. So you're probably already know him, you're probably already love him, but if you feel like taking a deep dive into the backside of the weird, uh, this is a good one to jump in on. Well, Dennis McKenna, th thank you for joining us on Homegrown Humans. Uh, really looking forward to getting to have a far-ranging conversation. Um, I think you and I first got to cross paths personally when we were both sharing a stage at a conference in Vancouver last year. Um, but your, your life, your writings, your research uh, have been um, weaving in and out of my life for, for ages, all the way uh, back to Paonia, your birthplace, you know, being the shared, uh, the shared home base of high country news and all sorts of good Western slope, natural living. That then sending you actually into a career of, of you know, relative empiricism, you know, ethnopharmacology, mm -hmm. botany, uh, you know, the sort of life of a scientist and a professor. Um, Terence kind of took the other fork and the parallel and complementary track of being mm -hmm. a sort of trickster philosopher. Um, and between you guys, that notion of the eschaton, the time wave zero, the fact that there could be, and whether it was in 2012 or 2000 or 2020 or TBD, just that idea of linear time is not necessarily indefinite <laughs> and we may be approaching inflection points of sorts that may change everything. Uh -huh. So, so I'd love to, I'd love to just kind of riff with you, which is the relationships that you've gleaned over half a century and of reflecting, writing, living um, between indigenous wisdom, plant knowledge, and the eschaton or the end of time. What do you think? Well, I think we have enough to, to fill three hours here easily, <laughs> just, just dealing with those. But, uh, yeah, the eschaton is uh, a tricky thing. You know, the eschaton basically comes out of the Western religious tradition. You know, the idea that time has an end and that there at some point the apocalypse or whatever, the you know, this is a Christian notion. But the idea that, that history is not infinite, that there is a prehistory and we know that. And there's maybe a post-history, and maybe at this juncture, at this point in time, we're approaching the end of history, and we're transitioning into some post-historical or ahistorical epoch. And oddly enough, I think that 2020 is going to be a, a marker. You know, we'll look back and say, you know, the, the world ended in 2020. You know, the world as we know it ended in 2020. Something else took it, its place, and that's the world we live in now. But it's a very different world, and I think it's going to get much different, uh, you know, as time goes on. We're seeing what it is like to be living essentially in these end times, you know, and or the end of this particular um brand, I guess you could say, or type of historical time. We're in it. We are post-historical. Now we're living in some other other temporal uh on some other temporal wave, you know, yes. 
and uh, well, well uh, and let's, let's let's actually define that because you, you you touched on it and, and I think it's it's just worth unpacking for anybody that's not familiar. You said fundamentally this notion of the eschaton is Judeo-Christian, right? And I don't know if you're familiar with John Gray's uh, work at the London School of Economics, but he wrote a book called The Black Mass and the and the Myth of Utopia. But he basically says every, you know every Western movement, including secular movements like communism, are all still mm -hmm. just the Judeo-Christian alpha. In the in the beginning was the word, and then yeah. omega, and at the end something awesome happens. Something awesome or terrible or both happens, and that, right. that was you know Elia Prigogine talked about it with Times Arrow, like that idea that Westerners not only do we have some metabolic directionality to our sense make to our sense making and perception but that our religiosity has also created a very linear version of time and that most of them are hockey stick stories. You know, you get yes. to the steep part of the curve and then whatever is our original condition, whether it's man's born everywhere and is in chains and is subject to the capitalists, you know, or we right. were kicked out east right. of Eden and we're going to be redeemed soon. They all follow that script, as does cryptocurrencies, as does the current psychedelic renaissance. Like we can't help ourselves. We just pour all of mm -hmm. our stories into that and they're so seductive and so persuasive and they maybe even feel truthy. You know, they feel they feel true because we're so used to that. You know, it's the same with the Goldilocks rule of threes. This one's too hot and this one's too cold and this one's just right. And every kid in bed knows there's three of these things coming, whatever the tale. Right. So to what what's your extent? But I think as a species, we have this intuition that uh, you know, we or we are coming to the end of some kind of phase and entering entering another one. And the the uh, unfortunate, you know, as a species, I mean, maybe it's part of the sickness of our species in a certain way that we're not able to live in the present. We're always either regretting the past or not necessarily regretting it, but but we have we have a nostalgia for the past, which seems safer and somehow better. And this whole mythology associated with past times, the 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 golden age, right? Which it never was, right? But our memory, our collective memory, reconstructs it that way, and then we anticipate the future. This yearning toward what Terence sometimes called an interesting concept, the transcendental object at the end of time, you know, which is what we were trying to create at La Chirera. Philosopher's Stone, yeah. The Philosopher's Stone is one instantiation of it. It's the ultimate artifact. And the interesting thing about what we were doing and what it is, is, uh, you know, it, it it is an artifact. It's a biological artifact that you make out of yourself. It's like yogic transformation or something. It, you actually, uh, you, you know, uh, Jeffrey Kripal and uh, Whitley Strieber, you're probably familiar with Whitley Strieber. Uh, I'm not. I'm familiar the, with Jeff's work, but, but not Whitley. The, 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 uh, the guy who wrote Communion, Back in the '80s, the alien guy, or he was well. He's he's kind of a screwball. Uh, <laughs> so we're, most, we're most in company here. Yeah, yeah. But but he and Jeffrey wrote a very interesting uh, book a few years ago called Supernatural. Mm -hmm. Supernatural. Two words. Uh, a new uh, understanding of the unexplained was the 
was the subtitle. And in this book, how I got into this is I was invited to a symposium in Hawaii that was, where all of these things about aliens and so on were, were to be discussed. And, and they told me that Whitley Strieber was going to be one of the guests. And my immediate knee-jerk reaction to that was, I don't want to be on the same stage with this guy. I mean, he's a flaming nutball, right? And uh, and and I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to go on with him. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be associated with lots of strange people, but there is a limit, you know? <laughs> and, so, and so I said, but then he said, well, the, the guy that was organizing it, Jeremy Vaney, said, well, Whitley's going to come, and uh, do you know about this new book that he wrote with Jeffrey Kripal? And so he brought that to my attention, and I, I'd been to visit, I'd given uh, seminars and symposia with Jeffrey a couple times when my book came out, and I you're familiar with Jeffrey's work, right? He's professor of comparative religion at Rice University, and his kind of specialty is superheroes and the paranormal. And, 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 and Ramakrishna and Eric Davis studied with him, all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. Eric Davis was his graduate student, exactly. And, uh, and so I said, well, okay, this sounds interesting. I'll read this book. And I read the book, and I said, uh, uh, you know, if you can get Jeffrey, I know that Jeffrey's not a screwball. I'm not so sure about Whitley, but <laughs> if you can get Jeffrey to come, then I'll come. And so I did. He he did come. We spent a very interesting weekend together. And when you see Whitley in person, he looks like he looks actually like your tax accountant. I mean, he's very very buttoned down. Very, uh, you know, nothing crazy or, you know, I mean, he's just a little man and, uh, uh, you know, very dapper little man. But anyway, to get back to the point, in, in his book, in this book that they published together, which in which basically Whitley is, in one chapter is relating some of these wild tales that he talks about, the things that happened to him. And I was able to set disbelief aside and just kind of take it as it was and say, okay, well, maybe this happened. Maybe it's all in his head, but something definitely strange happens to this guy and happens to him all the time. With, 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 then, any, with any precipitating events? I mean, is this under the influence of psychedelics yeah, or visionary practice? Or? Alien abductions, this kind of thing. I mean, he's so all just, about just driving along in the field and then suddenly like close encounters. Yeah, or in his bedroom. You know, I mean, these things appear, these these entities uh, and, you know, they take him away. They take him to places. It isn't clear that he's not hallucinated all of this stuff. It may just be pure hallucination. And but uh, to him, they're real experiences. And then in the book, Jeffrey, you know, Whitley's chapter and then Jeffrey will unpack those experiences in terms of how does that fit into mythology and you know a relevant relevant themes and so it was a fascinating book and in the latter part of the book there are a couple of chapters about okay let's let's grant for a minute that this is really a real phenomenon so what is it and what is the 
And and the, this, this this being non-human autonomous sentience? Non-ordinary reality experiences, what you might call extraordinary experiences. And they do happen to people. And Whitley just seems to be a magnet for this. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not really questioning his credibility. I believe that he sincerely believes that these <laughs> things happen. But I don't, but I'm, I'm not saying they did because I also read not too long ago Oliver Sacks' book called Hallucinations. Yeah, yeah. Have you read that book? Which yeah. completely changed my perspective in a certain way because it seems that you can hallucinate in full color, sound, everything, the damnedest things, you know. The damnedest things. They, he tells that story of like morning glory seeds and like having an entire conversation with friends that didn't come to visit that he served breakfast to. You're like, whoa, like that's very well, that's No, that wasn't that my story. No, that was about Detura. Not morning well, glory seeds. No, no, I was talking. I was talking about Oliver Sacks's story of morning. Glory. Oh, okay. But but well, you maybe, had you had one with Detura. Detura is, uh, yeah. Detura will reliably do that. You know, you will see and interact with entities that are that look like other people that are as you know they may look like people that you know, your friends. That was my experience when I took Detura, accidentally thinking it was Morning Glory Seeds. And uh, I had a full-on typical uh, case, you know, a typical uh, intoxication with Detura in which these, you know, I, I used to tell my students when I taught my ethnopharmacology class, Detura is not a psychedelic, but it's a true hallucinogen. In the sense that you have hallucinations that you cannot distinguish from reality. And psychedelics, you may have hallucinations, but you usually know that they are not real, you know, that they are a hallucination. The detour hallucinations are exactly that, where you, you know, I could be sitting in a room and by myself intoxicated by detour, and, uh, and, and maybe you show up. You know, and you're sitting in the chair next to me, and we well, sit. I mean, we, we would have had fewer tech issues, I'll tell you that. Much. We don't have any tech issues that way. Exactly. We have a conversation, and then you sort of just fade away like a wraith, and you were never there, but you were as real as a solid seeming as as I did. Anyway, uh, we've gotten off track a little bit, but... but well, you, uh, you, were, you were telling the story of, of Jeffrey and this fellow's book and the subsequent chapters where he kind of got to the, well, I think, the, the nature of things you wanted to share. Right. The subsequent chapters when they're speculating, uh, let's assume that these phenomena go on. What are they and what is the physical basis of it? And in one of those chapters, one of those chapters is named The Soul as a UFO. And so the kind of the, the sort of the Jungian thesis, hmm? the sort of Jungian thesis. Exactly. Well, kind of yes, because Jungian wrote about UFOs. But just the title of the chapter really grabbed me, because the soul as a UFO, uh, you know, uh, and they talk about well maybe, maybe that is what UFOs are. Maybe they're a soul of some sort. And I, my reaction was, damn right they are. You know, at La Cherera, we were downloaded the blueprints to do exactly that, to build the UFO. 
you know, and we followed the instructions and very strange things happened. Not, not what we'd predicted. No UFO came out of it, unfortunately, but very interesting other things came from it. You know, you can read about all that in my brother's book, True Hallucinations, or my book, uh, Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. But, Which is the best uh, title ever, by the way. Oh, it's thank it's, you. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've, been, I've been using that re, using that repeatedly ever since reading the book. Just, Have you read it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Scre the Screaming Abyss, dude, yeah. it's like, that's, that's the jam. I mean, if you, haven't, yeah. if you haven't seen it yet, you haven't gone far enough. That was kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek, but, uh, you know, and, and, but when we went to La Chirera looking for what we thought was an, well, we were looking for this exotic hallucinogen called uh, uh, ukuhe, something that the uh, Witoto people used, made from varola. Varola is a genus of trees that the sap, contains high levels of uh, dimethyltryptamine and 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine. It's used by various tribes in the Amazon in the form of snuffs. And, but the Witoto make an oral preparation out of it. And why that's interesting is DMT and 5-methoxydmt are not orally active unless they're combined with an MAO inhibitor. That's the basis of ayahuasca, a DMT-containing plant is activated by alkaloids in, in the vine, in the Banisteriopsis vine, that are very potent MAO inhibitors. So it renders DMT orally active. So instead of having 10 minutes or 20 minutes in this place, you know, you can have six or seven hours. And it's not as intense as smoking DMT, but it's much more interesting in the sense that you you can bring back more from it. And so we, we were... Uh, well, wait, and just, just to clarify, was that, was that more interesting version, was that the ayahuasca experience you're describing or the snuff experience? The ayahuasca experience okay. yeah. is more interesting. Uh, the, the snuff and smoking synthetic DMT is certainly interesting, but you can't bring back much from it other than just a sense of what the hell was that? You know, I mean, you you have you come away with a, a sort of sense of astonishment that maybe you know the most profound thing you've ever experienced just happened. But but even as before you even come down, you're forgetting it. You know, it it it, it oh, disappears yes. like smoke. You know, the the, the amnesia of the anamnesis. You forget what you exactly. just remembered that you'd forgotten, and you're like, "Fuck! I swear and, I wouldn't do that." And you can remember more from ayahuasca. Well, back in '71, um, when we first down there went there, uh, we went looking for this Watoto drug called ukuhe because it was reported as an orally active form of DMT. That I mean. And nobody knew about ayahuasca. Nobody knew the basis of the pharmacology of ayahuasca at that time. You know, Schultes had graduate students out in the field who were sorting this out, but nothing had been published really about it. And so uh, we didn't, you know, for a long time, ayahuasca, the importance of the admixture plants, so the fact that it's a combinatorial preparation 
was not really appreciated. You know, it was thought, well, ayahuasca is a vine and it's it's prepared from this vine, which it is. But the admixture plants were not, uh, you know, identified as a as a big part of it. And then later they were. Anyway, we went we went to uh, uh, La Chirera. And The reason we went to La Chirera was because that's the ancestral home of the Witoto. And they were the ones that Schultes, in a paper at the uh, uh, Harvard Botanical Mu Museum leaflets, had reported. And the title just jumped out of it because at us when we ran across this paper because it was called Varola as an Orally Active Hallucinogen. And Terence and I were both preoccupied with DMT. That's what got us into psychedelics in a more than casual way, you know. I mean, we're back in the 60s, late 60s. Everybody was, many people in the counterculture, or whatever, were experimenting with LSD and whatever else was there. DMT was very rare at that time. You'd never heard of it. But Terence was very good at working the matrix. So he, he had it. And we both uh, experimented and, and, with. And what what was the plant derivation? What what plant material were you guys working? It was synthetic. It was synthetic. It was this horrible orange paste that was probably made in bathtubs. It was it was anything but pure. You know, good pure DMT these days, which you can get, is a crystal. It's you know a light yellow, and it's a very good preparation. The 1968 version was this smelly orange paste, you know, which was probably full of really bad stuff. <laughs> that was back in the days of Mexi brickweed too. But the sand, but the Sandos and the Owsley was the tits, you know. Like it, you just, it was a quality game, you know. Yeah, I mean it, the DMT was in there. It did the trick, you know, and we were we were impressed. We thought this is not just the uh, the most interesting drug that's crossed our radar. This is the most interesting thing that we've encountered, you know, in our short lives. And, and in some ways, I have to say, you know, 50 years later, that's still true. I mean, the, the tryptamines are the most interesting class of psychedelics because they do seem to open up this portal or channel to entities and you know they have a very science fiction cast to them you see machines what you may be machines you don't know maybe they're buildings maybe they're you know god knows but it's a completely alien environment but you can you can take it you can be immersed in this and and then you can forget it almost. I mean, that's that's one reason, I think, why when a person takes DMT, you know, uh, there's an impulse to try to box it in with language almost immediately. You try to defuse this experience in a certain way because it's so powerful, so alien. So you start explaining it to yourself, you know. Well, and well even I mean, let's, if, let's talk about that because I mean, you, you, you had you one know, of the... You, you, you had you one of the more documented, blow your doors open, not sustainedly non-ordinary experiences, meaning like that, that your experience down in La Chirera went past the metabolic timeline of supposedly yeah. having drugs on board, right? So, so you, you ripped a hole in the fabric of reality and it stayed open for days right. to weeks, right? That's right. 
half but it a wasn't, century later. It wasn't Ukuhe. It wasn't this drug we were ostensibly looking for. You know, when we got to La Chirero, we had been in we had been sort of warned by an anthropologist that we'd encountered on the way in who was who you know we knew he was there i mean his colleagues in bogota had said you know you were encounter dr uh his name is horatio collier you'll encounter dr collier probably as you make your way to la Chirera. and we did and he was in this village in the first place he was completely appalled we, there was no way to send a text or anything in those days. We just showed up in the village one day, and we were rather a colorful band, you know. I mean, we like we stepped right out of Haight Ashbury, you know, long beards, beads, you know, colorful clothing. I mean, far more colorful than any of the Witoto. <laughs> and, and he was utterly appalled. And uh, like, take me to your and, medicine, and, man, man. Yeah. Where do <laughs> these people come from and what in the hell are they doing here? And then and and he was even more appalled when we explained, well, you know, we're we're here to find Ukuhe. You know, and that really freaked him out because he thought, you know, how did you find out about this? He's like, this that's some inside biggest, baseball. Yeah, what are you, you doing? Know, this, is, this is like, where did you hear about this? This is the biggest secret of, of, of uh, Witoto shamanic medicine. And we, well, you know, Schulte's paper, blah, blah. Anyway, so... Uh, I mean, I've recounted this story a lot, and I don't want to—I don't want to necessarily dwell on it. But when when we he said, "Well, you can't just go in there and start asking around about Okuhe. You've got to be careful if you do it." And we said, "Yeah, whatever, Doc. We'll be careful." You know, as much as a twenty and a twenty-four-year-old, you know, who figured they had it already figured out. But we continued on to La Chirera, and when we got to La Chirera, we had listened enough to him to say, well, you know, well, let's get settled in here and be discreet about this thing. But at La Chirera, they had, uh, around the uh, this mission village, they'd cleared the pasture, they'd cleared the forest. So it was about 200 acres of pasture around this mission village. They brought in Cebu cattle, the white humpback cattle, and it was the rainy season. So there were huge clusters of Psilocybe cubensis mushrooms growing out of pretty much every cow pie. And uh, we, we knew what they were. You know, we'd done our homework. We had virtually no experience with them. We'd taken a light dose at another place on our way in, but we really had no idea of the depth of the experience that you could connect with. And we we approached it in a very cavalier way. And we thought, well, you know, uh, this if you know this will do until we get the secret, right? We can we can enjoy these mushrooms until somehow we manage to connect with the Ukuhe. You know, well, the mushrooms clearly made it made it clear that they were the real secret, you know, and they were the ones when we we started eating them pretty much on a regular basis, like a daily basis. We actually incorporated uh, incorporated into our diet because there wasn't a lot else to eat. You know, we had rice, <laughs> canned beans and stuff like this. And, uh, and, and, you know, they make a good 
tasty mushroom soup. I mean, they don't really taste that bad. So we consumed a lot of it. And it's, it established this I-thou dialogue relationship as these things tend to do. And it was like, you know, it had things it wanted to teach us, that it was concerned to teach us. And part of what it wanted to transmit was this thing we could do to construct the Philosopher's Stone or the UFO or whatever it was using sound and the mushrooms and our own bodies. And uh, what was uh, the embodied component? What, what, what hmm? was it that you were? To, what was it that you were to do with your body? So my understanding was toning and overtoning that there was something you guys right, were doing right. vibrationally. We, we could hear at these high doses of mushrooms. Uh, we could hear a sound in inside our head, like a tone or an electrical buzzing sound or something like that. Very similar to what you can hear on DMT. I don't know if you've taken DMT. I suspect that you have. But often people hear these kinds of sounds on DMT. Uh, and with high, and you understand that psilocin, which is the active uh, metabolite of psilocybin, psilocybin is converted to psilocin in the body. Psilocin and DMT are chemically very, very close. Psilocin is 4-hydroxy DMT. And so... Yeah, exactly. And isn't that still a research chemical that's available? I think you're it is. Probably no, it's you're probably thinking of 4-acetoxy DMT. Is it AOC? 4-AOC body. So psilocin, get off into the tangent of chemistry a little bit. Psilocybin is 4-phosphoral DMT. There's a phosphate group on the 4 position, the top of the indole ring. That's quickly cleaved away in the body, and it's converted to psilocin. 4-hydroxy DMT. There is a research chemical called 4-acetoxy DMT, essentially the same thing, different enzymes, but that acetoxy group will be cleaved off yielding psilocin. It's chemically identical to, to it is psilocin. It's just a precursor, it's different. These are these are prodrugs. These are what uh, pharmacologists call prodrugs in inactive form. In the mushroom, it's stored mostly as psilocybin. Then you ingest it, and your cellular machinery goes to work, removes that phosphate group, and converts it to psilocin. But and psilocin and DMT, psilocin is just different enough chemically from DMT to make it orally active. You don't need an MAO inhibitor to make psilocin orally active. I know these days some people uh, do combine, uh, you know, combine MAO inhibitors with with mushrooms, but it's not really necessary. I mean, it will boost it, um, but the other solution is just eat more mushrooms. You know, eat a higher dose and you'll get to the same place. But so psilocin and High doses of psilocin and DMT will get you to the same place. You know, very similar experiential place. Uh, the difference is that in the mushrooms, this can go on for two or three hours rather than 
you know, 20, 25 minutes at the outside. So in that experiential place, you we had this sense of being in communication with some kind of intelligence that was, it wasn't ever clear to us whether, you know, I mean, we were not in a position where we were thinking very clearly about very much, but it was either the mushrooms themselves or the mushrooms were a channel through which some intelligence was communicating with us. Well, and they well, were well, communicating- let, 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 let's just let's just pause right there, because sure. you mentioned the I-Thou relationship. Martin Buber famously expressed that, right? That idea of there's the me, the subject, there's the divine or the numinous that is the object we are in some form of relationship or dialogue. And then you said, hey, in our experiment, down in La Trier, and by the way, quick sidebar, was there traditional indigenous use of those mushrooms or had they just kind of found their way into that recent clearing? They found was... their way into that ecology. As far as okay. we know, uh, the Wichoto didn't use them, didn't think much about them, mm-hmm. at least okay. until we we showed up. And then maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, <laughs> Attracted, maybe we attracted, don't need color but, uh, television. Yeah. Hmm? Um, so, so then, so let's talk about it because you, you you just skipped over. You said, well, perhaps we found ourselves in an either relationship. Perhaps it was with the mushrooms, or perhaps the mushrooms were a pharmacological catalyst, enzyme, signal booster, whatever, to information from another form of intelligence. Where, where are you yeah. now? How would you hold that today in all that retrospect? Well, you know. Uh, I think it's a suspended judgment. I mean, today I am uh, much more inclined to say that this all comes from within. This really is your own head talking to yourself. You know, uh, ayahuasca also often presents itself in an I-thou relationship, and there's a tendency to project onto the medicine what's really inside you know it 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 facilitates your ability to have a dialogue with yourself and it's like that that other part of yourself that you're that you're having the dialogue with does not appear to be you it appears to be in fact quite alien but it still could be part of you i and and i don't um I don't claim to know how to sort that out, you know. I mean, Terrence. Okay. Well, well, well let, let, let's do it. Let's just do it a step at a time. Uh, and you're just, you'll help me think this through. But so if furthest out is these entheogens, psychedelics, et cetera, provide access to non ordinary hyperdimensional realms with other entities. Okay. That, that's, that's a mm-hmm. major, that would be. Yeah, you know, world changing for all world religions and most people's beliefs. You can prove it. Yeah, right? absolutely. Big news, right? Shy of that, you could say there is some. I mean, we are probably anthropomorphizing, but there is some form of personalities, qualities, um, whim, agency to the actual plant themselves, and that would be congruent with many indigenous traditions who have related yeah. with plants over time. They they absolutely personify them and give them qualities and standing. So that's right. still radically interesting, but a step down from access to hyperspace. And then you might, and then what you've just posited loosely, I, I get that you're holding all of these loosely. Um, right. You said, hey, I think this might be just us having conversations with ourselves. And so on the far end of that is straight up 
you know, I suppose almost Oliver Sacks like, you know, reductionist materialism. These are all just neurochemicals popping off. This is all persistent hallucinations. We are making meaning out of essentially raw data gobbledygook, mm-hmm. even if they are persistent illusions. But then, you know, somewhere up that stack is how, how generously do I define myself? Right. And so the sentence you, you were alluding to soul as UFO, you were you know, even on the notion of, you know, do these boost my signal and my capacity to scan the hard drive of my body, mind and brain. And included in that is all the carbon and all the minerals and all the rare things that were actually star stuff in the Big Bang and my DNA code. I think they've literally just stored the Wizard of Oz on the human DNA strands. So you're like, right. Ah. right. OK, so there's, you know, mechanical proof of concept that we store information in our genetic epigenetic expressions and our neurochemistry and our synaptic you know pattern recognitions um where in that whole within the subset of self we're just actually learning about ourselves where 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 do you feel most comfortable where do you feel is the the level of that palace that most accurately you know includes your own experiences without you know while still honoring kind of the occam razor minimalist well yeah i mean occam's razor is a good place to start and but not necessarily the end of the story i mean the the tricky part you know uh as a person who is a scientist and basically oriented toward reductionism but then i've had enough of these transcendental experiences to realize that there's a lot that simple reductionism doesn't really explain. I mean, the thing about science is it's very good at constructing models, but it deals with a very small slice of reality. And for a small portion of reality, it's very good. You can ask, it's a way of asking questions of nature and getting answers back that you can sort of test, sort of verify. It leaves out of the picture many aspects of experience and nature that don't easily, uh, you know, lend themselves to reductionist, uh, you know, or empirical verification, and I, I think psychedelics is, uh, you know, a prime example of that. These things happen. It's either, like you say, it's just neurochemistry, and in some sense, you could say everything is neurochemistry because we do not have an experience that is not filtered through our sensory receptors and then processed internally with associations and so on so that we create this model of reality this this is also called these days the 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 trendy term is uh the default mode network but i i i used to call it the and i still do i i like it better i call it the reality hallucination (laughs) <laughs> reality it's a hallucination we don't live we we never experience raw reality physics if we believe our instruments which again come through these sensory portals and all that but if you believe our instruments physics says reality looks nothing like this you know it's not solid we're not you know none of this is this is a hallucination that our brains construct for our convenience mostly so that we can comprehend the, what's going on. You know, if, if, if we had to process all the information that's coming into us, 
and then being processed, it, we would just be, it would just be a blooming, buzzing confusion. We couldn't make sense of it. Building the reality hallucination or the default mode network is a lot about what it excludes. You know, there is this process called sensory gating. The brain is... So, so that's, the, that's the Henri, Henri Bergson original, like the one that Huxley picked up for the doors of perception, kind of exactly, cortico-thalamic exactly. gating. Right? Huxley is the first one to articulate, well, Henry Bergson, but right, okay. Huxley articulated it. And this is, you know, I think this is a good model. I think that this oh, is... Okay, so interesting. So way back when, that was the provisional, and it's bearing the test of time and updated research. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, so a lot of what the reality hallucination is, is this ability of the brain to take this chaotic uh, input of information, process it, and, you know, combine it with internal processing, which may be memories or, you know, associations or, you know, just the raw muck of experience, if you will, out of which you construct a more or less coherent model of, of your experience of being in the world. It's like you're the producer, director, and star of your own movie. You know, you're telling yourself the story even as you live the story, you know, and in order to make the story coherent so that you can be functional more or less, you have to leave a lot of the a lot of the story on the cutting room floor, in a sense, if we could, if we continue that analogy, because it doesn't fit, and it's not immediately relevant, you know, to your survival. It's not helping you, you know, respond to the saber toothed tiger who's coming to eat you or the bus that's about to run you over, you know. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I mean, let's see, because I mean, as you're describing that, I just have this sense of like, oh wow, is there a is there an integration of all these pieces? So like, let's say you, we're, we're used to living life with blinkers. We've got our aperture dialed very tightly shut. We have an experience. Right. It could be pharmacologically produced, shamanically, breathwork, you name it, whatever. Boom, blows the aperture mm -hmm. wide. We're suddenly taking in sort of everything and exactly. no thing. And in that, in that sort of overwhelm, we potentially get to what feels like stepping out of ego-based meat suit narrative identity, linear causation, all of these things. Are we, do we find ourselves outside of time? And, and you can use whatever models, you know, make sense, but like Kairos and Kronos is one, you know, from the Aristotelian to Heideggerian perspective, mm -hmm. like there's, there's clock time, Kronos, right. and then there's Kairos, sacred time or timeless time, deep now. Um, mm -hmm. Was that, I mean, we, and, you know, just, Feel free to respond however it hits you, but like, I know tennis Terence riffed on the notion of logos, the word, and even even right. shamanic substance as 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 a mm -hmm. sort of instantiation. What is the right. relationship to logos, Kairos, Kronos, and the eschaton? Like, how how do you, do you hold all that, and what and what does it potentially point for our way forwards? Yeah, I think it does potentially, you know, I, th I think that the, uh, you know, the, the great utility of psychedelics, both therapeutically and just as tools to uh, understand and explore consciousness is the fact that they temporarily 
disable this default mode network, you know, or they disable this reality movie that you're constructing and suddenly it goes in a different direction. And I think the ability to step outside that reference frame and examine the situation from that perspective is extremely therapeutic if if that's the purpose for which you're taking it. You know, it lets you look at your existential situation in a different way. And so if you're dealing with things like addiction or trauma or all of the things that we we postulate that psychedelics can can help ameliorate or just reassess your uh, relate your your perspective on what is reality i think it uh, you know it's very useful in that way because it what i sometimes like to say is it brings the background forward you know uh, usually the, this model that we construct it's all about suppressing what is not a, not important or deemed to be not important, you disable that, you can suddenly pay attention to the background. There's all kinds of interesting things going on in the background, you know, whether that's physically in the environment or mentally in your mind, you know, and when the two come together, it gets, you know, it gets very interesting. So the ability to uh, shift your reference frame, I think is, very useful this is this is and then once you have that tool then you can you can have you can compare you know this is my grounded default mode network experience this is what i experience when i take a psychedelic how do they compare and what is what is in that other that altered state that may be useful something that i can't really comprehend as long as I'm trapped in this default mode network or this reality hallucination. And that's where the learning going is going on. And I, I think that people get hung up in, uh, in discussions about like these entities and so on. Are they real? Are they inside or outside? And if you really think about these terms, they're very simple terms, but they're used very carelessly. And uh, what I say is anything you experience is real, you know, I mean, because all we have is experience, right? Whatever we experience is real. I, I might experience an entity that appears to be, you know, um, eight-headed, multidimensional, you know, energy god or something. It's real in the sense that I experience it. The stuff that Whitley Strieber experiences, for him, it was real. It was totally real. Does it correspond to anything in the, and here the terminology gets very awkward, does it correspond to anything in the real world? Who knows? We, we can't say anything about the real world. We can only say things about our models, you know? And so that's 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 the tricky part. Uh, but rather well, well, than- But here's the thing, here's the thing, because like for anybody else that I'd be talking to, I would let that slide. That's a good, straightforward, secular humanistic, interpretation of what do we do with these spaces but you sir are a blue ribbon carrier of the screen you know, like 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 pilot repeller of the screaming <laughs> abyss so i'm not gonna let you off the hook so easily so because because i think few people <laughs> few people are as qualified to ponder the yonder as yeah. you so yeah. in this big ass wild multiverse we seem to have found ourselves in as monkeys with clothes 
and you know overactive prefrontal cortices. Um, what do you think? Are we the only are we the only sentients out there? Uh, do you feel that these compounds and plants provide access either in and of themselves, sui generis, they in fact are intelligent, the sort of panspermia hypothesis idea, or are they frequency boosters slash, you know, gateways to communication? Where do you, where do you, you see know, on that spectrum? These are, these are tough questions, you know, and, and I've, I've pondered this all my life. And my final answer, I mean, is very disappointing because the final answer is I don't know. You know, I really don't know. And I don't think anyone knows. I think we have to be careful. I think it was Whitehead who said uh, the essence of science is the suspended judgment. And I think, you know, our science, the beauty of science is that it's it's number one, it always acknowledges if it's practice in its true spirit and the true spirit of science is the search for truth, you know, and it's a tool for asking questions of nature that you can verify. But from the get go, science has to acknowledge that its models are always incomplete. You know, uh, once you construct a model about something, you can never prove it. You can only say, based on the data available, this model appears to be valid. Next week, something may come along that completely overturns this model or forces you to, you know, radically modify it, like the transition from Newtonian to relativistic physics is a good example. These, as new data comes in, paradigms change. So you're always working within the limitations of that understanding. And, and people, uh, you know, often ask me, well, you know, like ayahuasca, you've been taking ayahuasca for 40 years, what have you learned? What I've learned is I don't know shit. Yeah, I, think, I think it was right. Robert and Anton Wilson said Oscar that. And this is what always repeat, right. always tells me, you know, never forget how little you know, you know, and, and, uh, and I think that's one of the lessons of psychedelics. We'll probably never get it figured out, whatever it is, you know, which doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't, look at our efforts to understand as failures because no model is ever going to be complete. But to the extent that you can expand the sphere of your understanding, that's worthwhile. That's, you know, that, that contributes to the sum total of knowledge. And, and whether this, you know, another thing is this information, like what the mushroom or the entities behind it were downloading to us about how to do this biophysical experiment. Uh, uh, you know, the question is not really what is the source. The question is: Is the information valid? Is the information exactly used, exactly right? Because my, my sense, my sense is, is that until you get one to one, I mean, it, it, well, I would, I would hypothesize it does not feel that there is a one to one linkage between non-ordinary non state information and successful application in 3D. It appears orthogonal on the best of days and a really right. like slippery clutch, <laughs> you know? And so you get all kinds of power loss and all kinds of wonkiness. And, and if it really was remotely one-to-one, -one, then you'd be like, holy shit, we are onto a, um, a salient information feed. If it's always tricksy, 
You know, with, yes. if, if, if it's always slippery, if it's always counterintuitive, if it disappears right when you rely on it the most, then, then you're sort of like, what is this squishy thing? And that's a little bit more like the sort of the land of fairy, you know, or, yep. or some other element, you know? Yeah. And, and to, to your there point, is always a trickster aspect to these to these substances and these kinds of ordinary experiences. That's why they're so frustrating, because it's like you say, it's wiggly. <laughs> Once you think you have it nailed down, it'll wiggle out from under it and present itself in, in some other way. And there's really no way to get it nailed down. So, uh, well, yeah, I mean, you, and, and... you kind of have to reach a place where you say that's not the point. You know, you're not going to get to some definitive understanding of anything. You're just going to get hopefully better models, better and better models, but they will always be incomplete. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's, and it's, I'm, I'm sure one of your contemporaries, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, you know, he said that about entering the Chapel Perilous, which, if you know, for, for in his parlance was essentially the tryptamine realms of like high psychedelic non-ordinary states. And he said, you know, you leave one of only two, two things, you know, insane or agnostic, you know, <laughs> like what right. the hell is that all about? Right. And that to me seems honest. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm far more comfortable with humility and curiosity in these spaces than false certainty. That terrifies me. Exactly, exactly. You and I are completely in resonance here. Humility and curiosity. Curiosity is what, uh, you know, what drives science, what drives all kinds of intellectual in, uh, inquiry. And curiosity is play, you know? It's playful, it's fun to think about these things. If you can just like, you know, and I, and I guess this is something I've learned over the years of taking psychedelics and something that was different when Terence and I went to La Chirera because we had this much younger mindset and we thought we're, we're looking for ultimate answers here. You know, we're, we're going to nail this down. And then it took 50 years or more to realize there ain't no ultimate answers. You know, there are just answers, and sometimes not even that, but just that more or less explain experience. And it doesn't even become that important, you know. Uh, it becomes, uh, well, that's where the humility comes in. I mean, I am, I hope I'm humble. Um, I'm, I'm intellectually humble in the sense that I've come to a place where you know, I don't have that many years left on this planet, and I'm pretty much, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to figure it all out by the time I pass on. And I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with that. It's sort of like the, uh, you know, I mean, there's an interesting analogy to the to the way that people who, in in terminal situations, react to psilocybin when they have these experiences. You know. Because usually, what leads them to seek out that therapy if they're if they're dying is this anxiety and preoccupation with dying, and this will be the ultimate. This will be the end. This will be the ultimate, and people can get quite terrified by it. And then they have the experience, and they have a different attitude, and they they say, "Well, yeah, the therapeutic aspect is reflected." in this change of attitude, this reduction of anxiety, because they say, well, yeah, actually I'm dying, but wait a minute, I'm alive right now. You know, I'm alive now. So why not 
be in the moment. And that is just tremendously helpful to people to, to accept that. It's, yeah, death is out there, but death is out there for all of us. Sooner or but later, so we're ice all going to... Yeah, so is ice. Exactly. <laughs> we're all going to have this experience sooner or later. Don't obsess about it. It will come in its time. In the meantime, enjoy life. And I think, I think that... Uh, for those of us who spend a lot of time in our heads anyway, I think curiosity is a wonderful thing to have, you know, because it gives you an excuse to be curious about anything, interested in everything. And uh, I think an intellectually active person, um, you know, enjoys it. It is a form of play. You know, and and I am, and and one reason that I have a, uh, you know, sort of sort of knee jerk uh, repulsion and dislike of dogmatic systems like religions, you know, I, I think religions can have elements that are, uh, you know, that are admirable in some ways on the ethical level and this sort of thing. The problem I have is that they tend to be systems that encourage you to stop thinking. You know, they are a set of answers. If you'll just accept these tenets of the faith or whatever, you can be happy and you don't have to worry about it. These are the answers. Don't trouble your little head about that. That does not, that's not satisfying for me, you know, and, uh, and, but it's safe. I mean, for many people, it can be very comfortable to retreat and, you know, one of the problems with these, uh, you know, these spiritual technologies, these spiritual practices and so on is they can be uh, temptations to, for, for power for certain people. If, that, if that's their inclination, then they can grab on to this numinosity, this spiritual energy, and bend it toward their own purposes, which are not always... Uh, not always that ethical, you know, and, and we know this goes on in every spiritual practice, psychedelics included, uh, you know, uh, so these are not, uh, these are not toys, these are pretty serious technologies, but the moral element, I think, comes from within us, you know, and that's, that's true of everything we interact with, you know, all technologies. I think there is no, no, there's no inherent good or evil built into any technology. It's the use that we make of them. You know, we're, we're the entities that have to supply the moral dimension to our existence. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, so so um, thank you for that. And, 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 in, and in, I wonder if, you know, like a full circle, here's the thing I'm, curious about hearing how you set things up to start with, which is you said, hey, Latra, we, we had that experience. Um, there, there appeared to be some end of time point. 2020 might even be having have been that end of time and we're already kind of fumbling our way into what's next, what's after that. Um, right. And then, you know, um, you, you and Terence in particular kind of explored that notion of like the stone date hypothesis that perhaps psychedelics helped primates kind of wake up, helped us become homo sapiens sapiens. Um, and that idea of logos, like the idea of the, uh, the evolution and the invention of language. And something that I've been wondering about lately 
is, uh, you know, is this thing, this eschaton, this end of time, are we on the verge of an inflection point that the nearest analog we have is actually all the way back to the invention of language? And in the same way that like before naked apes had logos, before that descended and we figured mm -hmm. that shit out and could start making sounds, we were we were still naked apes. We still had to get glucose to the brain. We still had to avoid you know big drops and sharp teeth. Like like the game of staying alive was, again, yes. was identical, but when you layered on language, then suddenly that unpacked abstraction, ideation, ethics, models, values, aspirations, all, and and then led to the and in fact I'm reading. Have you read the book Sand Talk um, by a fellow named Tyson Yanka Porter? He's a he's a phenomenal Aboriginal professor. Uh, down in Australia, but he's writing this beautiful book about indigenous wisdom and really going mm -hmm. back and just like making making the obvious case for the oral tradition. And I hadn't really, yeah. I think we tend to think of like language, Gutenberg, written word, newspapers, yay, you know, but the idea that for 98% plus of human history, it was purely oral, which was mediated by the vagal nerve, right? Our, our tone, our embodiment, all these things. We then create right. lists hieroglyphics, alphabets, we abstract mm -hmm. it from the speaker, whether they're trustworthy, yeah, these, whether these are they're these are These are projections into the external world of what is essentially an oral visual interior experience. That's the crux, I think, of the stone dape idea is that they're cognitive learning tools. They, they helped us construct or create this internal world, this model reality we've been talking about. They facilitated that by making us aware uh, of giving the assigning meaning, essentially, to internally imagined abstractions, you know, and it gave us the imagination. I mean, in a simple sense, it gave us the ability to imagine things, to visualize things, not only visualize them, but then express them in language, even projecting them into the physical world in the sense of artifacts. We can think of something we want to build, and whether it's a, an arrow point or a starship, we still have to imagine it on some yeah. level. We also have the accretion of culture beyond one metabolic lifetime. Like if yeah. my grandpa figured out how to nap flint, you know, or building that lateral, then I I benefited from that. I don't have to. I don't. We don't have to do the monkeys at a typewriter thing every single generation, right? So there's the accumulation of knowledge, but then in the abstraction into basically alphabet language, written word, we've taken what was fully embodied and is now disembodied, and then we take it mm -hmm. all the way to zeros and ones. We continue it to have fragmented, spliced, abstracted life further and further and further and further to the point where most of us are literally diseased by our relationship to the natural world. And so my, my curiosity is everything that you were just describing about being in that deep present moment in an expansive psychedelic state and potentially you as one of the early pioneers of that state experience, are we on the verge potentially of stepping into a quantum consciousness and culture? And I do not mean that in a throwaway new agey way at, at all. <laughs> I mean that you know, technically right. and literally. That perhaps right. that that is effectively if if logos was us being able to use our glottal stops and tongues and you know voice boxes to make stuff happen is this potentially the embodiment in an integrated nervous system 
of a hominid to be able to hold what you guys first pried open all those mm -hmm. years ago. And might that, and again, it doesn't absolve us of the monkeys with clothes thing, just the same way language didn't change us from the naked apes we were. It was just a, this huge bolt-on pack, upgrade pack. And what yeah. would be possible if we could hold it and stabilize it without mania, without depression, without psychosis, without anything else, and then do good things from there? What, what, what's your thoughts on us living into that as kind of what's on the other side? Of I, uh, I think that, yeah, I think that, um, you know, uh, the, the mushrooms are, and other psychedelics, but mushrooms are most most likely the the er psychedelic. You know, they're most likely the first one we encountered, and uh, here we are, two million years later or a hundred thousand, however long it's been. They're still one of the most interesting experiences that we have, and they have as much uh, of an impression on us post twenty first century you know, uh, hominids as they had on hominids back in the, in, in prehistory. They're still just an incredibly profound experience, I think. But in the meantime, you know, that, that's happened. We've, we've made this descent into history, you know, which we may now be ascending to the other side. We've gone into the abyss. We picked up a lot of unfortunate things in that process, a lot of things have, have uh, attached themselves onto us in the process of this historical experience. And these are the dysfunctionalities that we experience as we became more and more estranged from nature and more and more sort of insulated in our own bubble of, uh, uh, of you know, experience. So we brought, you know, out of that, spring the dysfunctionalities that we identify as uh, you know neuroses and and uh, mental dysfunctions and so on the psychedelics are now emerging I think people are beginning to realize that uh, you know uh, one of the reasons that we as a species are in so much trouble is we become estranged from nature and you know we need to rediscover that psychedelics may be, one of the tools that can help us rediscover that connection. And that doesn't mean, you know, I mean, that's sort of like, you know, the, the, the curative properties, the therapeutic properties is just something you have to get through to be more fully functional. And then once you've interiorized that, and I mean as a species as well as an individual, then you can get on to the really interesting and more stuff more more important stuff in a certain way the the you know you can move on into that world of wonder that the psychedelics render accessible and but you you have the you've kind of rebooted your system in a certain way i think the analogy to rebooting a computer is probably pretty close to what goes on with uh, with psychedelics they they let you temporarily disable, demolish this default mode network, which is keeping everything bundled up tightly, you know. And uh, like any hard drive, 
mistakes will accumulate, glitches will show up, it slows down, it doesn't work as well. So you just burn all that down temporarily, you know, and and uh, the default mode network being what it is and the the brain nervous system and all that being seeks equilibrium, right? So it's going to reconstruct itself. Um, it will rebuild itself, but it will rebuild itself in a slightly more functional way, you know, and that may stick that maybe you only need one treatment in a lifetime to do that. Maybe others like people like me, maybe we're slow learners. We have to keep doing this <laughs> to keep it functional. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, so, so I really think that that's what psychedelics are in, in the, in the individual sense. And then in the species sense, they give us a way to, uh, step out of our reference frame and, and put our historical experience in perspective, you know, uh, something that is not talked about much uh, in discussions of, of psychedelics. We talk about the psychedelics in the context of science and developing clinical protocols and practices to use them as medicine. And in a sense, that in a way defuses their their potency diffuses their numinous power in a certain way well these are just chemicals and you know if you take them it'll change your neurochemistry and and that's pretty much it so there is a tendency to uh ignore or repress the other aspects of psychedelics which are the cultural context the societal context the historical context these medicines come out of uh our ancestry you know and and they have connections to possibly the you know if you believe if you put credence in the stone date hypothesis they possibly have connections to our earliest ancestors you know when we really moved from being uh you know the naked ape to being the naked ape who's talking and asking questions you know that was the big transition uh, from, from the so, naked ape to the tripping hippie <laughs> what, yeah, what a wild ride. The, and and uh, I, you know so so I, I guess the point is that a psychedelic experience to us who were as a species we're pretty jaded in a certain way we think we've experienced everything but it can really set you back on your heels that's the point sort of it makes you question everything you know and that's a good thing that's a good thing but uh, one one point i wanted to make we talk about psychedelics in, in the context of you know the clinical science sort of the shamanic context the connection to indigenous people and uh and then the societal context we don't really talk about them in the co-evolutionary context and i think that's that's what's most interesting in a certain way. You know, these actually are, they're symbiotic partners with us, uh, with our species in this co-evolutionary odyssey that we're experiencing that started back in the, probably about 2 million years ago on the Serengeti plain. And now we find ourselves at this, particular historical juncture where you know we're 
you know, I mean, we're not ready to head for the stars yet, but we certainly have that that longing, I think, and that feeling that really maybe that is where our destiny is. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and, and that's a psychedelic perception. Maybe. Well, that would that would be one hell of a full circle if you agreed yeah. with that with with the. Francis Crick panspermia hypothesis that mushroom spores survived the vacuum of space, made it to this earth, woke up a little bunch of monkeys and said, hey, psst, we're supposed to go back. We just came to get you. There's a rockin' cosmic jam. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Jamie, but I have to disabuse you of a couple of notions here. <laughs> oh, I'm unattached. I'm just saying, wouldn't that be neat, you know? Because I, I, it, I, I really tried once uh, I, I gave a seminar at uh, Turingham Hall one one time. I really tried to make the case that I think the name of it was are uh, is our uh, mushrooms extraterrestrial was was basically the question, and the answer is you can't make a case for that. You know you can't make a case that mushrooms are extraterrestrial because if you look at phylogeny. They're part of a terrestrial life. There's no doubt about it. You know what you really have to ask is tryptophan. Maybe that was something that was seeded into the biosphere by you know alien super biotechnologists back in the day. Tryptophan is the amino acid that most of these psychedelics come from. All the tryptophan, all the tryptamines, certainly LSD, all of these things. Tryptophan is a very interesting amino acid. It's one of the oldest evolutionarily amino acids. Serotonin is one of the oldest neurotransmitters uh, and probably had many functions in the biosphere before, before there were complex nervous systems to make use of it. You know, most of these things, like if you look, for example, at psilocybin, you know, we know enough about the phylogeny of the the mushroom group, the basidiomycetes is the is the uh, division. I think is the term that includes all all guild mushrooms, and so that's about seventy five million years old. So mushrooms have been around for much longer than we have, and psilocybin has been around for much longer than we have. I mean, it it you know because we're so young compared to these ancient organisms, what was psilocybin doing before? Why did they bother? Why did mushrooms bother just, making psilocybin? looking for somebody with opposable thumbs, right? <laughs> or another purpose. Often in, in chemistry, these things, these compounds become, you know, they're evolved for one purpose, and then they become adapted as other species start to interact with these mushrooms we started you know we started eating them and they did all these interesting things so then we formed a symbiosis you know yeah. and the mushroom it's, it's is a little a, bit it's a little bit like that upgrade it, to the tree falling in a forest thing you're like you're like if, yeah. if cannabinoids and tryptophans and any of these compounds existed without ever finding neocortical vertebrates would anybody have ever known <laughs> what what mysteries and potential they contain yeah, yeah, but they exactly you don't know, and you can only speculate what what we can say about psilocybin. 
you know, uh, information that's come to light in the last five or 10 years is that for one thing, it, it undergoes horizontal gene transfer between different groups of fungi, which is very interesting because it's, it's, that happens, but it was thought to be mostly in bacteria that you get horizontal gene transfer. So this is not inheritance. This is actually direct uh, organism to organism exchange of genes. And it seems that this psilocybin uh, uh, synthetic complex, call it the psilocybin synthetase genes, has been shared over many phyla of fungi over the last 75 million years. Some of them are not that closely related to psilocybin mushrooms. You've probably heard of this cicada uh, that is uh, parasitized by a fungus called Massospora. Uh, that invades the body of the cicada and basically fills the abdomen of the cicada with mycelium and spores, so that when it and and it makes so that when it emerges, the 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 fungus contains psilocybin and also cathinone, which is a stimulant. It's the same amphetamine-like right? stimulant, yeah, as in cot. Cot uh, is a stimulant that people choose and cathinone is an amphetamine like derivative that's a similar has anybody to eat these i mean has is there any indigenous tradition god i pop in not these? no, <laughs> I no the, the cicadas <laughs> does anybody yeah, eat the cicadas undoubtedly uh, someone has but I, I i i mean it's so disgusting i don't even want to hear about it but that seems like it, that's just waiting to happen other things in there. But the thing is, the effects of uh, these infected cicadas, when they emerge, they become hypersexual and they, they will try to mate with anything. And in the process of doing that, they're waving their butts around and their butts are made of spores or just these spore masses. So really clever uh, strategy on the part of the Massospora to propagate itself. And maybe that's and we got ourselves some way, sparkle maybe ponies at Burning Man. Maybe yeah. we are spore dispersal mechanisms for the mushroom, you know. Um, um, but but the fact that this existed, this and other other studies with mushrooms and fruit flies show that uh, either the psilocybin may be a lure to the fruit fry, attract it to the mushroom, and it eats and disperses spores. Other people have suggested that what they actually do is they drive insects crazy. So they forgot where they came from and they, you know, they, and no one really knows, but I think it makes sense that the psilocybin probably showed up initially to modify the insect mushroom relationship. And then only later, it turns out, we evolved this uh, this uh, you know peculiar cortical uh, architecture and neurochemistry and all that, and these things just the psilocybin just happened to fit into the set of receptors that you might call the uh, the uh, you know the uh, transcendent receptors the the, yeah. the myst mystical receptors. Uh, it's crazy. It's crazy, really.
you know it is and, and then tons of trial and error like we have a dopaminergic system and we found coca leaves and we have an endorphin system and we found poppies and we have an endocannabinoid system we have a serotonergic system and we have we came pre preloaded with those peripherals and then yeah. somehow have bumbled through millions of years of adaptive evolution and trial and error and then you know if you talk to indigenous folks it's not trial and error the plants show them the plants teach them you know like they, they there's no it's not monkeys at a typewriter from within those traditions in most cases. But on the other, however we got here, we got here. And we have all sorts of keys that fit inside our locks. It's beautiful. Yeah, and it's not such a mystery, is it, really, if you think about it? Because uh, these compounds, what we call neurotransmitters, are you know we all originated from the same... Uh, ultimately, there is... Uh, way, way back, we don't know how far, but there is uh, something called the LUCA. You know, the last universal common ancestor is the LUCA. And then these branches arborized out from that and led to mammals, fungi, plants, and so on. But the, the chemical diversity that you see in plants, plants make all this stuff because they're messenger molecules. This is how plants mediate their relationships with everything else in the environment. These are, these are like neurotransmitters in the ecosystem in a certain way. They are the neurotransmitters of plants and fungi that, that you know, through these hyperconnected networks of roots and mycelial networks and, and fungal networks, essentially this is the sentience of the mind of Gaia. You know, Gaia, and I, I do, I am a believer, or I'd like to believe that Gaia, if you mean the the accumulated, uh, you know, organismic population of the Earth that's in constant communication with these different uh, levels of organisms. So these molecules, these these in biology, as you know, the term is signal transduction. Signal transduction involves exchange of information in which it's chemically mediated. In other words, there is a molecule that travels to a place, to a receptor, and interacts with that receptor. Well, the brain is the you know, primary example of signal transduction. That's basically what it is. It's a machine for signal transduction, but our whole our whole system and any biological system is is based on signal transduction. Signal transduction is what uh, orchestrates and organizes an organism through time. You know, it's the these are the uh, these are the the keys that let the metabolic dance happen in a certain way. You know, we think we're 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 objects we think organisms are objects no we're processes you know we express ourselves through time we're sort of like a piece of music on a sheet of paper it's not much it's it's just a sheet of paper it only becomes meaningful until you when you play the music right express it through time and organisms are like that and these well, neural that's, transmitter that's i mean just what you said right we, we just you like that well, we're just sheets of paper. There's just this, this set of codes or instructions on us to act out, and it only becomes meaningful when we play that music. 
And that feels like yeah. as, as succinct a description and of the human condition. When we introduce the, the drug into that system, you know, any drug really, but a psychedelic drug, in a sense, you change the key, you change the music, but the melody continues. It just is not the usual, the usual melody. And, and these plant and fungal compounds existed long before there were complex nervous systems but when complex nervous systems began to evolve uh and you know there's no beginning as they evolved eventually essentially these molecules became internalized uh, you know they had an ecosystemic function in the plant and fungal kingdom but but you know, in mammals and so on, they became internalized and purposed, repurposed to our internal uh, signal transduction processes, which we see as the functioning of the human brain, you know, and, and the rest of our body, of course. You know, when metabolism ceases, you only have the sheet of music, you know, you just have the machine, but it's not functioning and it's not very interesting. Well, and, and it and it's uh, and it can't sustain itself. It's, it's that old that old Dylan line, right? He not busy being born is busy dying. Exactly, exactly. Well, Dennis, listen, mate. This is this has been uh, amazing, and thank you so much. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective. <laughs>